regardless. Back to Nehemiah. Starting in verse uh, 17. Then I said to them, You see the distress we are in, how Jerusalem lies in waste. Boy, couldn't you read this about our own country? If you could see America from God's perspective, if you could see the spiritual realm, if you could look inside of houses that you thought had it all together, and you could see how much the husband and wife hate each other, if you could see the people that are addicted to drugs, if you could see the people that are antidepressants, if you could see the people that are hiding sin. I I read one study, 70% of men that go to church are using pornography. Maybe you're here and you think no one sees it. God sees it. He sees the ruin, doesn't he? But he says, you see the distress we're in. He's asking the people to open their eyes, look around. He goes, you see the distress we're in. How Jerusalem lies in waste and how the Lord would say our own nation, in many respects, lies in waste. Its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. You know, we don't want to be a reproach to who? To God. Or a reproach to the gospel, as Paul said in Colossians, to walk worthy of the gospel. Not a reproach to it, but worthy of it. Verse 18 And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me. Oh, isn't that wonderful? The hand of God has been good upon us. And also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, now the people respond. This is a responsive audience here. Let us rise and build. And they set their hands to this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, Geshem the Arab heard of it. They laughed at us and despised us. I could write here, and when Hollywood and the people that can't stand God that want the Bible out of the school and all the other people out there, they laugh and despise. Meanwhile, they promote ruin. They laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Will you rebel against the king, which was a deception because they were the ones rebelling against the king? Nehemiah has an answer, though. Verse 20. So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. God has our back, church. The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. You can circle we there. We will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. He's like, if you're going to reject God, you have no place in the family of God. Now, I don't preach that to people. Old Testament prophets are a little bit different than the New Testament, just so you understand. But the fact remains, if there's a rejection of God, we have no place with God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we ask again. We've humbled ourselves. Lord, we know your hand is in this place. We know your spirit has been in this place from the time we stepped foot in it, the worship, the prayer. And Lord, we ask now, wherever your word is read, we know that you are magnified and lifted up. We pray that, Lord, you would use your word. We could stop right here and just your words alone would be enough. We pray that you'd speak by your spirit. We would hear, obey, and apply in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Last week, we looked at Nehemiah wisely waiting, his willingness to take the next steps in God's plan, God's strategy. It's not our strategy, it's not our plan, it has to be the Lord's. 
And his wise and diligent, we saw his assessment there in the middle of the night, making that assessment. We, we talked about the church has to rise in the night. We're going to have to assess in dark and difficult places. Worse things could come in some day, and we're still going to have to be able to assess and receive God's strategy. Amen? He has the plan in his hand now. God has given Nehemiah a very clear plan. But now God wants to widen the circle. He doesn't want it to just be Nehemiah. God never wanted only Joseph to be part of the plan. All of the sons of Jacob had to come into the plan. He didn't want just Paul, but Timothy and Silas and Barnabas and all the others. He didn't want just Peter, James, and John. He wanted the whole early church, including men like Stephen, Philip, that would be raised up. So God wants to widen this circle, and he wants to take the people. Although it's a remnant there, he wants to unite that remnant. This remnant has not been united. They've not been doing what could have been done, what should have been done, what might have been done. Brothers and sisters, God has done it. I say oftentimes, our church, we've come a long way, but we have a long way to go. We've come a long way. I'm thankful for uh, how far we've come. I've come a long way personally, and I have a long way to go. How about you? My family can vouch for this. They see me way more than you do. But even though we have a ways to go, we're supposed to unite and actually go there. Rise up to the will of God, what he wants to do. And if you're taking notes this morning, you can see the title of our time, the word united and ready to rise. And we'll look at three things. We'll start at this first, back in verse 17, where he says to the people, Then I said to them, Nehemiah is recounting his mini message or his charge to the people. He's come to them. He knows what he's about to do. He knows what he's ready to do. He knows what he's willing to do. But are they there? Are they going to join him? You see the distress. He said, look around. You see the gates are burned with fire. You see the walls are down. You see the people are not on fire for the Lord. They're not really in love with God. You see the distress, the waste. Do we see these conditions? Or have we become immune to them? Do we really see? Do we really see when people are hurting? Have we become numb to conditions of ruin and brokenness and despair? If the Spirit shows us, reminds us, and makes us aware of these things, do we take it to heart? Remember the first thing Nehemiah did is he cared. He asked where are you at? What's going on in Jerusalem? He cared enough to ask, but he cared enough to care. He cared enough to pray. Do we start to see the need and the opportunity? Because wherever there's need, there's opportunity, right? If there's need, there's real opportunity. Do we see the needs? Do we see the opportunity that God has put before us? And however he wants to work in us, because I know God will work differently in you than in me. You have gift, different gifts, different talents, different relationships, different access points with people than I would have, and vice versa. Now, the people, they're well aware that Nehemiah has come 900-plus miles, which is about a two-month journey from Susa over there in Persia all the way to Jerusalem, the city of his forefathers. You know, as I said, I'm a little more connected to what happened in South Florida than maybe you would be. Nehemiah is very connected to Jerusalem. It matters more to him than it matters to some other people. And it will matter more to you things that happen in your family than some, something that happens outside of your family. But God wants us to care across boundaries. 
because Nehemiah wants them to care the same way he cares. He's come a long way. He has the blessing and the support of the, the most powerful king in the world at the time, Artaxerxes. And because he has a burden for the city, and because he has a burden for the people and their spiritual condition, people can see it in Nehemiah. They can see he has this. The people and the local leaders as well as the rest of the residents there, they're now, they're now fully aware that Nehemiah is taking on personal risk. Remember, he had a great job. He did have the taste of king's food, which had carried some we talked some secret service risk, but it's a different level of risk to leave the palace of the king and come to a place where there are already terrorists ready to take him out, men that are already plotting his death. That's what Sam Blot, they're, they're not to be joked around with. These guys are serious business. They're already figuring out how can we take him out? How can we put a contract on him? This is the kind of job that can also become a quagmire because it hasn't been finished in nearly 100 years. It can become a, a, a dead-end job. It can get you assassinated or certainly can make you a failure. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, we'll look at them a little bit more near the end, they are absolutely going to oppose any effort to rebuild, and everyone seems to know they're going to oppose it It's where, because it was at the end of chapter 1 as well. It says uh, in chapter... I'm sorry, verse 10 in chapter 2, when Sambalot, the Hornite, I mean the last of where we were at last week, uh, the Hornite and Tobiah, the official, heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come just to seek the well-being. By the way, the world doesn't even want you to seek the well-being of people trapped in sin, much less actually help them get out of it. But Nehemiah was committed, wasn't he? In fact, he was committed long before he actually saw the ruins for himself. He had only heard about them. Do you know you can care about things you've never seen? You can care about people in North Korea even though you've never been there. You can pray your way straight in. Isn't that great? You can pray your way into any part of the world. He was committed long before he saw the ruins. His commitment began when he was first made aware of the need and he became <laughs> deeply committed in prayer. It's going to be very hard for a leader to ask people to care, to ask people to be committed, to make sacrifices for something that they don't care about and they don't deeply care about. Amen? Leaders can't ask people, hey, you should care about this. Do you care? No, I don't care about it, but you should. Leaders can't just see and identify things, but they have to be invested. Invested. Yeah, you know... People, revolutions have taken place because leaders were just aristocracy. They lived above the rules, right? Outside of the rules. Hey, it's for you guys. If you lead your home, your family will know if you're really committed to Christ. Did you know your kids already know if you're really committed to Christ? You know they might not even say that you are or aren't. They're not going to rock the boat, but they're watching they see the real level of commitment that we as parents have. Not what we would say, not what we would uh, put on some church card, but what it really is. If you're not, they'll see little reason. Middle school kids, high school kids, college, they'll see little reason to truly commit their own lives to Jesus. 
You'll see little reason to go any further than we have gone. If you have a leadership role in your job or career, your level of effort, your level of care, your teamwork will typically be matched by the employees that support you. They'll typically match your level of investment. I remind our elders, I remind our deacons and ministry leaders that their prayer life, their devotional life, their level of commitment in certain ministry areas, their enthusiasm, their frequency and authenticity of encouragement to people and others will be matched by those that they're leading or those that are working and supporting and serving with them. Whether it's in the home, whether it's in the workplace, in the church, we can't lead with platitudes, can we? It has to be real. You know, Gene Mock was a Major League Baseball player and uh, went on to be a coach uh, too, I believe. He said, you can't lead anyone else further than you yourself have gone. You can't lead anyone else further than you yourself have gone. Nehemiah was not a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do kind of leader. It has to be genuine. It has to be sincere. It has to be consistent. Two weeks of following Jesus won't cut it for your family. It has to be a lifetime. Two weeks in any kind of leadership capacity are, well, I, I, I did it for six months. That should be enough to give an idea how this is done. No, it has to go on and be consistent. It has to be, has to be humble too, but doesn't it? Leaders have to be humble. If a leader's commitment is in place, there's a good chance they'll influence others to go the same direction. Nehemiah's commitment and burden, it was visible. A few men were with him. Remember last week we looked and a few men were with him that rose in the night with him? A few men, not a lot of men, a few men were already there. A few men were already rising with him. But what about everybody else? He's asked them to see and absorb. He said, look out. See it. See, he describes it. Fire, burned, ruins, distress. He's used real terminology that should connect the mind and the heart. He says, look, this is what's going on. See it. Absorb it. But there's no way this job is getting done without the people agreeing about them agreeing to help and to take action. Amen? They're going to have to come along. He can't do this job by himself. He wasn't called to do it by himself. He was called to lead it. This was Nehemiah's simple challenge to the people. You see the conditions. Will you now rise together and become part of God's solution? Will you rise up together and become part of it? This was Jesus' same challenge to the apostles and to us. Everything he said to the apostles, he said to us. You realize that, right? Everything said to them was said to us. In John 4, 34 and 35, right after he had ministered to the woman at the well, he said, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. He said, you're going to have to stop and look. Look around you. Look at the city of Richmond. Look at the world. Look at Guatemala. Look around you. He said, look at the fields, for they are already white unto harvest. He said, they're ready now. These people are ready right now to come to me. Well, they don't look ready. They look happy. They look busy. They look occupied. I don't want to interrupt. And he, he goes on. The other part of the verse, the next, or, or the other part of the, what he says here is really important. He says, and he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. 
Isn't that awesome? Jesus said, oh, by the way, those of you that are reaping are gathering wages for your eternal reward. That both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice. Here it is, together. There's the same word again. Jesus is saying this is a together work. Peter, James, John, church, look out. The fields are white. Whose job is it? It's all of you, all of you together. That you, some of you are sowing, some of you are reaping, gathering fruit for eternal life. The Spirit through Nehemiah and Jesus directly to the church are both saying the same thing. Do we see and will we go? Do we see and will we go? And now comes the moment of truth. Nehemiah says, uh, you see the distress. You see these things. Nehemiah can't make the decision for them. He's thrown it out there. He says, you see what you see. Reminds me a lot of uh, Joshua. Before the people in Joshua 24, 14, Joshua said, and you know these words, choose yourselves this day whom you're going to serve. But I love Joshua said, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You can choose another route. You can say, we're going to stay right here, and we're going to hang tight, and we're going to just, we're going to kind of serve God and kind of serve ourselves. Josh says, for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. But he says, I can't make the decision for you. You'll have to decide. Nehemiah says, I can't make the decision for you. I want you to rise up with me and build it, but you have to say, yes, we agree. What will their response be? Now, before we look at the response and the heart of the people, let's look at the tone and the posture Nehemiah takes. We know what Nehemiah wants the people to see because he's plainly stated it. We know what he wants them to digest and respond to. But, look, but how he makes the case is very key. And understand that Nehemiah, he doesn't want the people to agree with him. You understand that? He does not want the people to agree with him. He wants the people to ultimately come in agreement with God. Moses was never trying to get the children of Israel to agree with Moses. He was trying to get the children of Israel to agree with God. The same with Paul, right? They were never saying, hey, I, I, I really want to get more followers. They wanted them to become God followers, the Lord has orchestrated the moment and the time. The Lord has brought all these points together for this moment and time. But Nehemiah must demonstrate humility, compassion, and something else, spirit-led confidence. He has to demonstrate these things. It has to be a work of the Spirit. He's not This is a beautiful passage in another sense. That's why I want you to see the tone. Notice he's not rebuking the people for past failure. Isn't that good to know? Maybe you're here and you say, I failed God a lot. God's not here to rebuke you today for past failure. Nehemiah does not rebuke the people for past failure. The choice, of course, will be theirs, but he points them towards a vision, healing, God's help, and God's victory. If you go all the way to the last verse that we read, the last verse of chapter 2 here, he points them to a vision, Towards healing, God's help, and God's victory. Church, brother and sister, if you've given your life to Christ, but you've allowed ruins to fester in your own life, 
and for far too long you've ignored them, God is not speaking to you now or into your life to condemn you, but rather to pick you up, to refresh you, to clean you off, to strengthen you and get you back to the very work he's called you to do. Amen? Amen. Nehemiah does not preach a message of rebuking the people here. He simply says, do you see the ruins? And he lets the Spirit do the rest. Do you see it? Now let me tell you what God wants to do. But he waits for their response first, by the way. He tells them, but he waits for their response. Here's what it is. And once he knows that they have responded correctly, then he's able to tell them, I've got some really good news for you all. Nehemiah here is an agent of the Spirit of God. He's not the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is speaking through him. He's gently but straightforwardly saying, Come, get up, bury the past mistakes, bury the procrastination, the failures, and let God rebuild you so you can rebuild others. That's that's what he's saying. Even the language here invokes the words of Jesus speaking to large crowds of people. Jesus would do this to people who had been going in circles their whole life. What did Jesus say? Come. Look at your Bibles. What does he say in verse 17? Come. Let us. Come. Jesus said, come, all you are thirsty. Come, all you are weary and heavy laden. Now, Nehemiah isn't Jesus. But he's a faithful man, and yet he's a flawed man. We can be faithful, but we're still going to be flawed. Amen to that, right? And as he bids the people to come, to commit or to recommit, he takes a peer approach in describing the mission. Come, let us. Back to verse 17. Let us. He doesn't say, let you. He says, let us. He doesn't say, let me. Come, let me rebuild. doesn't say that. Come, let us that we may no longer be a reproach, that we may no longer be in a wrong relationship with God, but a reproach to the people. These are his Jewish brethren. He has a love for them. Christian, we're supposed to have a love for one another. We're not uh, rebuking each other, slapping each other upside the head with Bibles. Right? You spiritual knucklehead. Now he has a love for them. Remember that when he prayed a prayer of repentance, it was not a them prayer. It was what? A we prayer. We, Lord, we have sinned. Me, my forefathers, the people, we, we, we. He didn't say them, them, them. When he prayed and asked God for mercy, it was also we need mercy, we need mercy, we need mercy. Not I need mercy or they need mercy, but we need mercy. It was a collective. It was a together Israel was birthed as a nation of 12 tribes, 12 sons of the same father, right? A nation was birthed as what? Israel was birthed as a family. It was birthed as a family. It wasn't just a bunch of disconnected people that became They were a family from the outset, and the church from the outset is a family too. One family birthed by Christ into the family of God. So it is a we, it's a together thing. 
Nehemiah, in parallel to his prayer, is saying we may have failed together, but God is now calling us to come together, agree together, work together, rise together, even if we had failed together. All of these things, in addition to him emphasizing that we're in this together, he encourages them that God is ensuring, and this is really, this is kind of a, oh, a nice exhale of relief. God is ensuring the success of it all. Isn't that great to know? Can you imagine if everything depended upon us to be successful? We can't control the weather. God can. We can't control circumstances. God can. We can't keep the enemy at bay. God can. Don't let past failures or apathy hold us back, but don't let fears and doubts hinder us either. Because either one can stop us from moving forward, right? Past failures or fears and doubts that we have. The hand of God, he says, is upon me. Verse 18, and I told them the hand of God, which has been good, is upon me. He reminds them of the character of God, and he says, look, I wouldn't have made it here to even give you this mini-message if God's hand wasn't on me. Leaders, parents, mature saints in the Lord. Again, if God, if God isn't speaking to you, um, if the Lord isn't encouraging you, and this is why we, we have to remain in fellowship with the Lord, we have to have a pipeline of prayer and communication with God. But if God is not encouraging you, if God is not speaking directly to you, if God is not building you up because you're not waiting on him and hearing from him as Nehemiah was, you're going to have very little to encourage other people with. Nehemiah is able to say, not as some kind of statement with no meat or teeth to it, he's able to say, the hand of God, the goodness of God has been upon me. Can you tell someone in your life right now that you have such a relationship with God that you can tell them flat out, with all your flaws, you can say, the hand of God has been on me and using me. Now, I can give you example after example where God is using me right now in my life. Not that they need that, not that you want to sit there and give that list, but you should be able to have the testimony to say, the hand of God has been upon me. That's what he's saying. He's encouraging them. He doesn't itemize, here's all the ways God's done it for me. You should, no, no, he's just simply saying, I can make it, or you can make it because I know I've been able to make it. That's what he's saying. The hand of God has been upon me. You can't give out other people's testimonies. I mean, it's nice to tell other people's testimonies here and there, but you have to have a testimony, personal. You have to have a walk with God. You can't say, well, I don't have one, but let me, let me quick, get over here. You tell yours. <laughs> oh, you're unsaved. Okay, that's not going to work. All right, <laughs> who else in Starbucks here can help me out? You know. <laughs> Nehemiah could say with conviction that God has this. He could say it from the heart. And by the way, people will know when you say it with conviction versus you, uh, I read it in a book. Billy Graham said it once or, you know, something like that. Because he's had me, Nehemiah says, because he's had me, 
and he has not started this just to allow it to fail. That's what Nehemiah is saying. He's like, trust, guys, I wouldn't have come 900 miles, survived the trip. I know Sanballat wants a piece of me. I know Tobiah wants to take me down. I know that the walls have been here for many, many years. I know nothing's happened. God did not do this to fail. But it's the people's turn. Nehemiah has heard. He's cared. He's seen firsthand. And his burden has been deepened with time, not lessened, deepened. This is one of the problems uh, with things that happen today where you know it's not a work of God with people. When they see things and they forget about it within three days, they've not been stirred by the Spirit of God. That's called emotion. By the way, not, there's nothing wrong with emotion. God's given us emotions for good reasons. It's good to have emotions. It's good to laugh. Good to cry sometimes, good to care, good to cheer, good to put your hands up. But the Spirit of God takes us past emotions all the way to getting the job done. Nehemiah, he's cared, but his burden has become deeper. His personal commitment is more resolved, not less resolved now. It's not the longer he's walked with Christ. Yeah, I used to have a zeal for other people getting saved, but that was when I was a baby Christian. No. No. He's confident that God is calling him. He's confident that God wants them to rise and rebuild, but not just him, but them. And he's encouraged the people to hear the Lord, obey the Lord, and here it comes, to trust the Lord. You know, I've mentioned Dr. Stanley all the time. says, obey God and trust him for the results. Just trust him for the results. What is their answer? Let's take a look. Verse 18. We read it. You might have caught it. Hopefully you did. So they said, let us rise and build. Amen. Nehemiah was like, yes. You know, you can imagine, you know, he, what are they going to say? What are they going to say? Are they going to say, no way, can't do it. Ten spies, can't take the land, right? They say yes. This is huge, isn't it? This is the response Nehemiah had prayed for. This is what he hoped for. This is what I know he pleaded God for, for them to say yes. He pleaded. You ever pleaded with someone to say yes to the gospel? And when they say yes, you're blown away. You can't believe it. You're like, you really said yes? I felt that way. A no would have been a crushing defeat, wouldn't it? Aren't you crushed when you share with someone? You think they're so close to being saved, and then they say no? Or you say, man, I, I, we got this opportunity to do this for the Lord, and then they say, no, nah, I'm not interested. I don't have time for that. No would have been a crushing defeat. Yes means there's hope, though, doesn't it? Yes means the people have heard the voice of the Lord for themselves, not just Nehemiah, but they've heard the voice of the Lord, not just the few men with him, but the larger circle has expanded. They see the need. They see the ruins. They see the opportunity to repair and rebuild to see lives transformed. They see and agree with the will of God expressed through the servant of God, Nehemiah. And yet there's more to do. This isn't the end, though. They see and they've agreed, but do they really believe? There's another depth here. I mean, deep in their hearts and in their souls, has that switch been turned into the on position and locked into the on position? Right? I got saved in 1995. I have never, I mean, I got locked into the on position. I have never gone back to the world. 
I have no interest in going back to the world. If some of you say, oh, man, I'd love to go back to the world and hang out there for a while, have at it. But I'm not interested. I've been there, done that, and I would never do it again. Now, I don't say that with I'm saying that the Holy Spirit gives you a desire for spiritual things now. Like Once you've tasted, uh, you know, there's certain foods. I've never gone back to spam again. And I had that as a kid. So you still like it? I'm sorry. But uh, I grew up on that stuff. I've moved past that. Vienna sausages and just crazy stuff that in the 70s we thought was normal. God puts us in a new direction. It's one thing, though. Nehemiah, they, they agreed, but had they been locked into the on position, it's one thing to sign up, but it's different whether you'll show up. A lot of people will sign up, but still never show up. Is this faith or is this a flash of emotion? Last thing we'll look at. We know they saw. We know they agreed. But do they really believe? Do they really, really believe? The Bible says in James that faith without works is dead. dead. Hey, James says, remember Galatians is all about grace? James is all about faith. Grace and faith, they go hand in hand. James wrote, that Bible's a very balanced book, the most balanced book on planet Earth, right? So the reason why some of these things are written is to show what it looks like to have real faith, not just what it says to say it. Sadly, I've seen too many people over the years walk aisles, say prayers, even show remorse and emotion, and, and literally not one week later, I've seen it way too many times. No interest in God. Not even a week later. Now, some it takes a month, some it takes three months, but I've seen numerous, not even a week later, won't even respond to a text. I'm like, you were weeping, you asked Jesus, you know, uh, you were opening scriptures, you were coming to church for one Wednesday, and boom, gone. <laughs> You're like, what in the world happened? See, they were convicted, but deep down they weren't convinced. Yes, they were absolutely convicted, but not convinced. There was a sensitivity, but not a surrender. And even in this room, I guarantee there's some of you have a sensitivity, but not a true surrender to the Lord. There was an opening of the Scriptures and maybe a declaration. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I declare that's true, but not a genuine desire to follow Christ. Now, this passage is not about salvation per se. I, I understand. You say, well, this isn't a salvation. I know. It's not a salvation message, not the text itself. Nor is it about authentic conversion. But this principle remains constant throughout all the scriptures. And here's what it is. Whether it is conversion, whether it's revival, whether it's an awakening from being currently lukewarm, when real belief and faith take root, I mean really take root, new actions replace old actions. New actions take place every time. There's never a time. Remember I said real revival has taken place like in England where they actually had to disband police forces. Why? Because real revival meant people stopped committing crimes. Real revival means all of a sudden dads love their kids and don't put their careers above them. Real revival means that all of a sudden moms and dads say, hey, we need to pray 
not just once a year, but continually as a, as a pattern in our life, and just on and on it goes. And we see it here. Look at what takes place after their acceptance and agreement. To amen means to agree with God. When you say amen, it's an agreement. We agree with God, and their amen is followed by action. So they said, let us ride and build, but it doesn't stop there. Then they set their hands to the good work. That's key, because talk is cheap, isn't it, right? They set their hands to the work. Their belief in the mission, their belief in the heart and the will of God is found in them now doing. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. You won't know them because they say they're an apple tree. You'll know them because there's apples on the apple tree. Not what people say is important, but what is produced in their life. Say, I'm a Christian. Jesus said, you'll know because the overflow of the Spirit will be evident in their life. Jesus said not to be hearers only. His word, he said, don't just be a hearer. Be a what? Doer of the word. Imagine the people all saying yes. Just think about this, because this happens a lot. This is exactly the American response in the church to so many things. Imagine all the people saying, yes, 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 yes. We agree with you. These walls, these gates need to re be rebuilt. We are going to rise and build. Nehemiah says, okay, start rounding up all the tools. We're going to need tools. Because right now, you guys, you know, you got your normal work gear on. We got to get some tools together. Everybody start rounding up all the tools trowels, uh, stone cutters, everything you can get. Reopen the rock quarry because we're going to need to cut stones in perfect squares. Reopen the rock quarry. If you get to go to Israel, you'll see how large some of these stones are in the walls around Jerusalem. Got to reopen the rock quarry. Assign a team to head to the forest because we're going to have to start cutting down timber for the gates. Remember, he had been given the king's pass to use the king's forest. Now imagine that the people say, whoa, 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 whoa. We totally are going to help you do this. But we weren't thinking just yet. We were thinking maybe 10 to 20 years from now because we have a lot of cool stuff we want to do first. So we were thinking once the kids get out of college, once, you know, uh, we've got big, certain big bucket list things. I mean, we've got really, Nehemiah, we've got these really big bucket list things. And so when we're done with that, can we meet back here in 10 to 20 years? Because we do mean yes. We add, remember Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. You come and follow me. And by the way, Nehemiah would already know that about every 20 years, previous generations had effectively said yes but then not done anything. Each one, oh, yeah, we'll do it, but not do it. No, their belief in the mission, mission was met with their response. They set their hands to the work. They said, let's open the rock quarry. They said, with initiative, let's go do these things. They signed up, they stood up, and their work was set in motion. This wasn't a false start. This was the real thing. This was a real commitment. By the way, in my life, whether in personal life or my previous career before I was in ministry, and certainly in ministry, I'd rather people not even sign up if they're not committed to showing up. Just don't even sign up. Don't play games with God. And you're in the workforce. Do you really want people signing up? You have an important project and they're not actually going to help? Oh, 
Just sign up and mean it, right? At least you know who you're really working with, right? At least you know what you're really working with. But the people here, they were all in. They're convinced. They're motivated by the Spirit of God. They had set their hands to a, I think nobody calls it, a good work. There's a lot of works out there. They're not all good. This is a good work. The mission of Christ is the best work. It's the greatest work. A good God always gives his people a good work. Amen? But guess what? Did you know that when you make a real commitment to God, the enemy will test your level of commitment? Uh-oh. Right? When you make a real commitment to God, the enemy will test your... And guess who allows it? God does. A lot of you are saying, God, what gives? I said, yes. I grabbed the tools, and all of a sudden, I got shot in the back. What happened? Even if you really started, you meant it. You really were... You set your hand to work, and all of a sudden, here it comes. You finally get the nerve to go on that mission trip. You've paid the deposit. And here comes Sambalot and Tobiah and Geshem, right? Not a week later, your car needs 300 in repairs. You're heading to your very first Sunday working in the children's ministry. You've gotten to bed early every night that week. You studied in advance. And all of a sudden, near the end of the week, three straight nights of wide awake. And you even avoided coffee. You have no idea why you're wide awake. Wide, wide awake, instead of being rested, you are exhausted, and you still have to go. You've committed to going into Bonaire on one of the two visitor passes they allow per year. But the same afternoon, you're offered concert tickets to a Christian concert. <laughs> it's the VIP backstage with a full buffet. Backstage passes, pictures with your favorite Christian artist. I mean, this has to be from God, right? God's just canceling out. I didn't care as much about the kids there incarcerated, but I, uh, you know, Jesus, uh, I was reminded by the Spirit, Matthew 25, 36, Jesus says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. By the way, I tell people, you want to start going to Bonaire, go visit Jesus. You're not going to visit those kids. You're going to visit Jesus. He says, I was there and you came to me. And you were trying to find the verses. I was at the concert with backstage passes, and you came to me, right? And yet you can't find the verse for that. See, Christians have replaced the good work with a lesser work a lot of times. I'm not against concerts. I, we've gone with the kids. I'm saying that when God calls you to a specific mission, like rebuild, it's more important than something else. All things are not the same. Christians today have put their families their kids' sports, their careers, everything comes before God in the American church. God is down around seven, eight in some cases, maybe three. But I'm telling you, again and again, they have, their priorities are all out of whack. And Jesus is saying, this is the good work. This is what I've called you to do. The attacks on our belief, the attacks on our faith, and the level of commitment will always come. They're always going to come. You make a commitment, it'll always come. That's why people won't commit because they're, they're afraid of the attacks. But it, they'll, they'll, they'll never see great victory. They'll never see the power of God. They'll never see the move of God. Here it came in the form of mocking, questioning, casting doubt. That's what these three guys were doing, it, it, and they were leading others. The enemy in our own flesh whispers 
these things in our same ears, doesn't he? You can't do that. That'll ruin your life. That'll be boring. That'll be lame. Plus, you'll get attacked. Nehemiah's opposition reminds us that it may come in different directions, but it's the same purpose. It's to stop us from ever going forward. Sanballat, he was Nehemiah's lead enemy. He was from Beth Horon, about 12 miles from Jerusalem. He had a position of authority in Samaria. He worked for the same king of Persia. By the way, even when people work for the same leader, they have, you ever, see, you ever heard of turf wars in companies, right? There's people there to sabotage all the time. Haman and, Dan, uh, um, uh, Haman and Mordecai worked for the same, same king too, right? Yeah. Esther, Mordecai, Haman. But there's always people planning to take the people of God out. But God has our back, right? But Samblot, he was instrumental in, you know, he was instrumental in, he encouraged the Jews, especially from the priestly tribe, to marry and intermarry with non-Jews. And he established worship that was parallel to the worship in Jerusalem up in Samaria, which God had not said to do. So they had a false worship set up. Tobiah, he was an Ammonite official, a sworn enemy of the Jews. He was even related in marriage to some of the co-laborers that would help rebuild the wall, but he was far more interested in inside information than actually the relationships. By the way, some people may look close, but not, aren't always, right? And he was on the inside to, to provide ways to sabotage, to undermine. He never wanted the Jewish people really restored. Even his marriages to people in the Jewish faith was only to undermine it. You know the cliche, keep your friends closer and your enemies closer, right? That was his motto, right? That was his mantra. Geshem was an Arabian. He was aligned with Sambalot and Tobiah. And keeping the Jews, all three, from reestablishing the city as the city of God. They did not want it the city of God. They wanted the city of men. We'll see more of these three as we go through the book. But all three were being used by Satan to foster compromise, empty religion, and to keep the status quo. Nehemiah represented a man sent by God to stir the people. Satan couldn't care less about churches on every block as long as they aren't filled with spirit-filled people carrying out the will of God. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, I do not think the devil cares how many churches you build if you only have lukewarm preachers and people in them. And he was right. God doesn't care. I mean, Satan doesn't care about churches as long as the churches are not focused on the good work of Jesus Christ. Notice the people and the work. They aren't mocked until they take the steps of faith, right? Looking back in your Bibles. Let us do the work. They raise, they uh, set their hands to do the work. Then comes Sambalot and company. As soon as they said yes and started, here comes the attack. But notice Nehemiah's response. Final verse, verse 20. Notice his response. He flatly rejects the discouragement and the intimidation. Christians, just reject the discouragement and intimidation of Satan. Just reject it. I, I have been meditating so much lately on this phrase from Jesus. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. 
He's overcome the setbacks. He's overcome my failures. He's overcome your failures. He's overcome, I don't care if you were abused as a child, molested, attacked, hated, mistreated, even if you've got family issues right now. Jesus said, I've overcome. You name it, he's overcome it. He's put all things under his feet. You cannot name one thing on planet Earth that Jesus hasn't overcome, not one. Why? Because death was the biggest, and he conquered that, death and sin. So everything else is easy for God. Nehemiah had come to the place that he was not going to be intimidated by Satan anymore. He flatly rejects it. He knows its source. He knows where it's coming from, but he knows it's God. Speaking for himself and for the people and his servants, he lets them know that God's going to prosper this thing. Isn't that great to know? He says, the God of heaven himself will prosper. There is for his servants will arise and build. They're going to arise. We can stand on the promises and faithfulness of God. Amen? Jesus said the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. I know it sometimes feels like they are, but he says it won't. Jesus said in Luke 12, 32, do not fear, little flock. Or a little flock too, right? For it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus is the only one that can give you the whole kingdom. Satan lies and acts like he has the kingdom. We know Satan was defeated in the wilderness, at the cross, and at the grave. He has no kingdom to give you. He is lying. Amen? The people could say with Nehemiah, he could say to Nehemiah, his brethren, his peeps there, right? God's got it. You guys going to be deterred by Sambalot and them? You guys going to be deterred by fat past failure? And they all say, we're going to keep moving. We'll see this when we get into chapter 3. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that you have not come to condemn. You said you've not come into the world to condemn the world, but to bring salvation through Jesus. And you've not come this morning to rebuke and condemn us. You have come to awaken us. You have come to open our eyes that we would see and absorb these things, but you've come that we might have life and cheer and joy in spite of the enemy's lies and deception. Lord, we see the deception in our own country. Lord, we don't want to see it in ourselves. And so we ask, Lord, that you would not only open our eyes, but, Lord, that we would say yes and agree with you and in our hearts believe with you and put our hands and move on into this good work that you've called us to do and go forward with you.